Our New Testament scripture reading is from Acts chapter 7. This continues from the previous chapter where you'll recall Stephen was brought before this council to be tried. Then said the high priest, "Are, Are these things so? And he said, Men, brethren, and fathers, hearken. The God of glory appeared into our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Charon. And he said unto him, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred, and come into the land which I shall show thee. Then came he out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Charon, and from thence. When his father was dead, he removed him into this land wherein ye now dwell. And he gave him none inheritance in it, no, not so much as to set his foot on. Yet he promised that he would give it to him for a possession, and to his seed after him, when as yet he had no child. And God spake on this wise, that his seed should sojourn in a strange land, that they should bring them into bondage, and entreat them evil four hundred years. And the nation to whom they shall be in bondage will I judge, said God. And after that shall they come forth and serve me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham begat Isaac and circumcised him the eighth day. And Isaac begat Jacob. And Jacob begat the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs moved with envy, sold Joseph into Egypt. But God was with him and delivered him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. Now there came a dearth over all the land of Egypt and Canaan and great affliction. And our fathers found no sustenance. (coughs) But when Jacob heard that there was corn in Egypt, he sent out our fathers first. And at the second time, Joseph was made known to his brethren, and Joseph's kindred was made known unto Pharaoh. Then sent Joseph and called his father Jacob to him and all his kindred, three score and fifteen souls. So Jacob went down into Egypt and died, he and our fathers, and were carried over into Sychem and laid in the sepulcher that Abraham bought for a sum of money, of the sons of Emor, the father of Sychem. But when the time of the promise drew nigh, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt, till another king arose which knew not Joseph. The same dealt subtly with our kindred, and evil entreated our fathers, so that they cast out their young children. To the end, they might not live, in which time Moses was born and was exceeding fair and nourished up in his father's house three months. And when he was cast out, Pharaoh's daughter took him up and nourished him for her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and in deeds. And when he was full forty years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended him and avenged him that was oppressed and smote the Egyptian. For he supposed his brethren would have understood 
how that God by his hand would deliver them. But they understood not. And the next day he showed himself unto them as they strove, and would have set them at one again, saying, Sirs, ye are brethren, why do ye wrong one to another? <clears throat> but he that did his neighbor wrong thrust him away, saying, Who made thee a ruler and a judge over us? Wilt thou kill me as thou didst the Egyptian yesterday? Then fled Moses at this saying, and was a stranger in the land of Madian, where he begat two sons. And when forty years were expired, there appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai an angel of the Lord in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he wondered at the sight, and as he drew near to behold it, the voice of the Lord came unto him, saying, I am the God of thy fathers, the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses trembled and durst not behold. Then said the Lord to him, Put off thy shoes from thy feet, for the place where thou standest is holy ground. I have seen, I have seen the affliction of my people which is in Egypt, and I have heard their groaning, and am come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send thee into Egypt. This Moses whom they refused, saying, Who made thee a ruler and a judge? The same did God send to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel which appeared to him in the bush. He brought them out. After that, he had showed wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness forty years. This is that Moses which said unto the children of Israel, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren, like unto me. Him shall ye hear. This is he that was in the church in the wilderness with the angel which spake to him in the Mount Sinai and with our fathers who received the lively oracles to give unto us to whom our fathers would not obey but thrust him from them and in their hearts turned back again into Egypt saying unto Aaron, Make us gods to go before us. For as for this Moses, which brought us out of the land of Egypt, we wot not what has become of him. They made a calf in those days and offered sacrifice unto the idol and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. And God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. O ye house of Israel, have ye offered to me slain beasts and sacrifices by the space of forty years in the wilderness? Yea, ye took up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your god, Rimphan, figures which ye made to worship them, and I will carry you away beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness, as he had appointed, speaking unto Moses that he should make it according to the fashion that he had seen, which also our fathers that came after brought in with Jesus into the possession of the Gentiles, whom God drave out before the face of our fathers unto the days of David, who found favor before God and desired to find a tabernacle for the God of Jacob. But Solomon built him an house. Howbeit the Most High dwelleth not in temples made with hands, as saith the prophet, Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What house will ye build me, saith the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Hath not my hand made all these things? 
ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. Ye do always resist the Holy Ghost. As your fathers did, so do ye. Which of the fathers have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them which showed before the coming of the just one, of whom ye have been now the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed on him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God and said, Behold, I see that heavens opened and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran upon him with one accord and cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. This Lord's Day, I would have you take your Bibles you have them and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 where we'll be focusing our attention upon verse 14. There we read these words, For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband, else were your children unclean, but now are they holy. Does God indicate that there is a difference in position and privilege between the children of Christians and the children of non-Christians? Or does the Lord view children, regardless of their parentage, as essentially the same as to status and privilege? Clearly, the Lord in his word graciously grants to children, yea, even infant children of believers, a blessed position and privilege not shared by the children of unbelievers, as we shall see today from God's Word. For there is a representative relationship between parent and child which is recognized both in Scripture and in nature. In Scripture, for example, the Lord asserts this principle of parental representation in the covenant of works, where we see that Adam represented all his posterity descending from him by ordinary generation. So that when Adam broke that covenant with God by eating the forbidden fruit, he not only fell, Eve's wife who partook of the fruit not only fell, but all those whom he represented, all of his posterity, except Christ, fell with him and in him. In this case, the status and loss of privilege was bound up in that of the parent. Again, in Scripture, when we consider that God makes it clear that a blessed status and many privileges befall the children of Abraham because of the covenant of grace into which God did bring Abraham. The children of Abraham through Isaac and Jacob were separated from the children, the rest of the children of the world. 
and recognizes members of God's people, recognizes members of the church of the Old Testament. The male infants descending from parents who professed faith and in the religion of Abraham were citizens of God's kingdom, just as were the parents. And to them was given the sign and seal of that membership, namely circumcision. The infant females being represented by their fathers. We see in Genesis 17.10 that God makes it very clear that to Abraham and to his seed is this covenant. And in token of the covenant that God makes with Abraham and his seed, he gives the sign and seal of circumcision. Here again, the status and privilege of the children were intimately bound up with that of the parents. Consider that even in nature, the law of nations recognizes the, print, the, the principle of parental representation as well. The children of American citizens are entitled to political benefits and privileges by the government of the United States, which uh, the children of Canadian citizens, the children of Mexican citizens, are not entitled. So it is true in all nations, both ancient and modern. In fact, Paul in Acts 22, verses 25 through 28, says that he was entitled to Roman citizenship not to be whipped without, uh, without a just accusation, without a trial, because he was born a Roman citizen. Not because he purchased his citizenship, but because he was born through his parents a Roman citizen. Likewise, consider that an infant son may be the heir of his parents' fortune and enjoy a special status and great privileges of wealth, although not yet capable of understanding all that he has inherited, not appreciating his status and all of the privileges that he has. Why? Because of the relationship which he bears to his parents. Now, all the children of the world are not entitled to that same inheritance that that one is entitled to because he bears that relationship to his parents. So likewise, dear ones, the children of parents who are citizens of Christ's kingdom enjoy a status and privilege within Christ's kingdom that the children of those who are outside of Christ's kingdom do not enjoy. For remember the divine principle, the status and privilege of children are bound up with that of the parents. This Lord's Day, we would further consider the blessed position enjoyed by our children within the kingdom of God as we look to our text in 1 Corinthians 7.14. From our text, we would seek to answer the following three questions. First of all, how is the unbelieving spouse sanctified by the believing spouse? Second, how are children unclean? And thirdly, how are children holy? First of all, then, how is the unbelieving spouse sanctified by the believing spouse? Well, we need to do a little bit of 
preliminary groundwork here in looking at the more general context of this chapter. In chapter 7 of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, the apostle answers various questions relating to marriage that were posed to him by the Corinthians themselves. We see in 1 Corinthians 7.1, the apostle says, Now concerning the things whereof ye wrote unto me. These were, uh, no doubt, questions or items of concern about various issues related to marriage. In verses 1 through 6, Paul states that marital intimacy is not a reward to be bestowed upon one another in marriage whenever one feels like it, but rather an obligation which each owes to the other. In verses 7 through 9, the Apostle of Christ declares that some have a special calling and gift from God to live a pure life of celibacy, never to be married. However, if one does not have this gift to live in peace and contentment as a single person, he or she should marry. He's not or she's not sinned because he or she cannot live this life of celibacy. In verses 10 through 11, the Lord speaks through Paul, his inspired apostle, and commands that professing Christians in marriage, where there are two professing Christians in a marriage, they are not to leave one another. They are not to divorce one another for unlawful reasons. And in verses 12 through 16, which brings us to our, our present passage, <clears throat> Paul addresses mixed marriages. And by mixed marriages, I'm talking about where there is a believer and an unbeliever in that marriage. For he says in 1 Corinthians 7:12, but to the rest speak I. To the rest, meaning he had just spoken to those who have two Christians or two professing Christians in a marriage. Now he speaks to marriages where there was a professing Christian and a professing unbeliever to the rest, to those other marriages, speak I. Paul says the Lord Jesus did not speak to this specific situation, which he is about to address about mixed marriages. And thus, Paul authoritatively himself speaks to this issue when he says, but to the rest speak I, not the Lord. He's not saying that I'm just giving you some pious advice that's not inspired here. I'm just kind of going off on a tangent. Uh, the Lord hasn't given me a, any authority to say what I'm about to say. He's saying the Lord, when he was here upon the earth, did not address this specific situation. But now I'm about to do so. <clears throat> These words of instruction we find <clears throat> here in verses 12 through 16 are just as inspired as the, uh, the, the verses he has already given now, <clears throat> it would appear that the implied concern on the part of some Christians in Corinth, as we look more closely at these verses, verses 12 to 16, that the implied concern on the part of some Christians in Corinth was that an unbelieving husband or wife in some way defiled a marriage to a believing wife or husband. 
We are not told how this situation arose, how there came to be a believer and an unbeliever in the marriage, whether the couple were both unbelievers when they were first married and then one was converted subsequently, or whether it merely appeared that there were two believers, but one was a hypocrite and apostatized from the faith subsequently, or whether a believer just rebelliously married an unbeliever. So we're not told how this came about, that you have a believer and an unbeliever. But that's not the most important thing about this context. That's not what Paul is seeking to address anyway. He's seeking to address, once that has occurred, is the marriage to continue or is it to discontinue? Does the unbeliever pollute and defile that marriage so that it should terminate? Just a word of admonition uh, to the young people and the young adults here at this point. Don't enter into engagement or marriage if you have doubts as to the sincere commitment of one to Jesus Christ and to the covenanted reformed faith which you yourself have embraced. Don't uh, flirt with it. Uh, Don't mess around or play with it because you will get burnt if that is the case. Take the time to know beyond any reasonable doubt the religious commitment of the one whom you desire to marry. Now, obviously, none of us can look into the soul of another person and know with absolute certainty, but we can take the time to investigate. We can take the time to to meet and to, over a period of time, to know that person in such a way that we are reasonably assured of that person's commitment to Christ and to the covenant of Reformed faith. There's nothing more important in marriage, beloved, than that you begin with the same biblical convictions in regard to the truth. To do otherwise is to court disaster, to invite dissension and disharmony into the home. Now back to our, our text. Paul does not deal with as we said, how these marriages were formed. He simply addresses the nature and the status of a mixed marriage. And he infers that such marriages are indeed legitimate, valid marriages, for the believing spouse is not to put away the unbelieving spouse if the unbelieving spouse desires to live as husband and wife. This Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7. Verses 12 and 13. However, if the unbelieving spouse does decide to desert the believing spouse in the marriage, the apostle gives his inspired instruction in 1 Corinthians 7:15, when he says, But if the unbelieving depart, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God hath called us to peace. <clears throat> if the unbeliever departs, God says, it is not the fault of the believer. The marriage is dissolved and and one would assume inasmuch it is not the fault of uh, of the believer and inasmuch as the marriage is dissolved by the desertion of the unbeliever, that then the believer is free to remarry. And we've certainly addressed that in other sermons 
that particular point, much more said about that, which I don't have time to go into this Lord's Day. <clears throat> now, as we consider 1 Corinthians 7.14 more closely, we see the reason why the believer in a marriage is not to leave the unbeliever. The stated reason is this. The unbeliever is sanctified by, or better yet, in the believer. The unbeliever is sanctified in the believer. We need to understand what that means here. The word sanctified is most often used in either an inward sense to refer to one in whom is worked by God's grace the inward quality of holiness, as in 1 Corinthians 6.11. There we find this word sanctified used in this precise sense. And such were some of you. In other words, the apostles just talked about <clears throat> there being various types of, 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 of sinners who are outside of the kingdom of God. And he says, and such were some of you at one time. But ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. God has worked within you this quality of holiness. It's not perfected yet. But it is growing in this particular life. Until death, we will be conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it either refers, sanctified either refers to this inward sense, this inward quality of holiness, as we've just seen, or in an outward sense, it may refer to one or something that is outwardly set apart from a common to a sacred use. As we see in Matthew chapter 23, verse 17, there the Lord Jesus criticizes and critiques the, the Pharisees because they said that the temple was sanctified by the gold, in effect, of the temple. That, the, that they swore, uh, if you swore by the temple, it was not binding. But if you swore by the gold of the temple, then it was a binding oath. But Jesus says, isn't the, isn't the gold sanctified by the temple itself? And so, in other words, what the Lord, again, in the use of this word, he's not saying that the gold has some inward quality of holiness, but it is set apart because it is used within God's house. It is set apart to a particular holy or sacred use. Now, it is clear from the scripture that since the unbeliever that we're looking at here in such a marriage had not come to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ in faith, he could not be sanctified in the first sense, inward. Because we find in Acts 26.18, the Apostle Paul says that it's by faith that a person is sanctified inwardly. By faith in Jesus Christ. And so it can't be in this first sense. There's not an inward sanctification of this unbelieving spouse in the marriage. Therefore, that leaves only an outward sense in which the unbelieving spouse is sanctified. Moreover, the tense of the verb is sanctified. The tense that is used there 
indicates that this sanctification or setting apart of the unbelief, uh, unbelieving marital partner to an outward holy use is already an accomplished fact which continues as long as the unbeliever consents to live as husband and or wife with the believer. Now, what fact accomplished the unbeliever's sanctification? What does that point to? It was his or her marital union with a Christian. For the text says, the unbeliever is sanctified in the believer. That is, in marital union with the believer. That's the sense in which we ought to understand this particular uh, sanctification. Sanctified in marital union with the believer. This being the case, it seems most likely that we are to understand the unbeliever's sanctification in, in this very narrow sense. The unbeliever does not defile the believer or the marital union. But to the contrary, the believer sanctifies the unbeliever and the marital union so that there is no sin in continuing the sacred divine ordinance of marriage. The unbeliever is sanctified to continue in marriage and does not pollute, but this continues to be a lawful, valid marriage, sanctified in that sense. Calvin has stated well, I think, the import of this sanctification in his comments on this verse when he says, It might seem, judging from appearance, as if a believing wife contracted infection from an unbelieving husband so as to make the connection unlawful. But it is otherwise, for the piety of the one has more effect in sanctifying marriage than the impiety of the other in polluting it. Hence, a believer may, with a pure conscience, live with an unbeliever, for in respect of the use and intercourse of the marriage bed and of life generally, he is sanctified so as not to infect the believing partner with his impurity. Finally, <clears throat> with regard to this uh, first point, it should be noted that the sanctification of such a professed unbelieving spouse never, you want to underline that word, never issued in any ecclesiastical status or privileges, whether within the Old Testament church or within the New Testament church. We see in Malachi chapter 2, verse 11, that the, uh, that the professing believers, the men who had taken to themselves unbelieving heathen wives, had sinned greatly against the Lord though they were coming and offering their sacrifices and performing their acts of worship, God was greatly offended. But it never mentions at all anything about the unbelieving wife having any status or privilege within the church. That as if she could come on the basis of his profession of faith and bring acceptable sacrifices to the Lord. 
The same is true within the New Testament church. As we see in Acts chapter 2, verses 41 and 42, the paradigm or pattern by which people enjoy the privileges within the New Testament church as they are adults is certainly laid out for us when it says, then they that gladly received his word, that is Peter's word, as he preached the gospel on the day of Pentecost, were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayer. So it was through their faith and receiving the word these adults were able, whether male or female, were able to enjoy the privileges of the church. That is all we ever find, whether in the Old or New Testament. No unbeliever, no professed unbeliever, <clears throat> who does not make profession of faith and who is able to do so, can enjoy the privileges of the church. Thus this word sanctification the sanctification of an unbelieving spouse clearly does not bestow any ecclesiastical status or privilege. It bestows only a marital sanctification in the sacred divine ordinance of marriage, which may lead, in fact, God says through Paul, to the salvation of this unbeliever in 1 Corinthians 7.16. There's so much more that might be said, but in the interest of time, we, we need to move on to the second point. We can certainly uh, uh, talk further about this later on in the day uh, to, uh, to elaborate on anything that may seem at this point a little fuzzy uh, to you. Second uh, question that we need to ask about this verse is, how are children unclean? For, <clears throat> again... Turning back to our text, we read, For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband, else were your children unclean. So the question needs to be asked, how are children unclean? <clears throat> we must see clearly the argument of the apostle as he sets as he sets it forth in these verses. Now, follow with me. Uh, you're going to have to pay attention here, but follow with me his argument. He first states his conclusion in 1 Corinthians 7, 12, and 13. He doesn't state his conclusion at the end. He starts with his conclusion. That is this. The believer must not divorce the unbeliever who consents to live as husband and wife. That's the conclusion. People wanted to know, is a marriage defiled? The believer must not divorce the unbeliever who consents to live as husband and wife. The marriage is not defiled. That's the conclusion. starts with that. Secondly, Paul states the reason for this conclusion in 1 Corinthians 7, 14a, the first part of 14. Why is the believer not to divorce the, uh, why is the believer not to divorce the unbeliever? For the unbeliever sanctified in his or her marital union with the believer, so it is not sinful to continue in such a marriage. 
That's the reason why the believer is not to divorce the unbeliever. Okay? Now, thirdly, there follows, and this is, I can't, again, underestimate the importance of this particular statement and what I'm about to say to the whole argument and to your understanding this passage. There follows a recognized and accepted truth which in effect seals the argument for the Corinthians that the unbeliever is sanctified in the believer. What was that recognized truth? What was that indisputable truth that all the Corinthians recognized? What was it that would settle the issue? Else were your children unclean, but now are they holy. We're going to elaborate on that. With this accepted truth, the case is closed. Paul's argument is established that the unbeliever is sanctified in the believer by saying that. Why do I say that this was an indisputable, well-recognized truth amongst the Corinthians? Because the very force of the two Greek conjunctions that are used here, epi, ara, and again that may not mean a whole lot, but it's, it's, it's uh, translated using one English word there, else. But it's two Greek conjunctions. The force of those two conjunctions is to emphasize what was already received by all the Corinthians as an undoubted an indisputable truth. Paul, in effect, argues this way. The unbelieving spouse is sanctified in marital union with the believing spouse. Otherwise, if that were not true, your children are unclean. But now we all know that they are holy. Thus it is proven that the unbelieving spouse is sanctified in the believing spouse. How or in what sense would the children be unclean if the unbelieving spouse did in fact defile the believing spouse and made the marriage sinful? Well, some have argued that the children would be unclean in the sense of being illegitimate, equivalent to being born out of wedlock by parents who were not lawfully married. Many Baptists argue uh, this way for the meaning of the word uh, unclean. If unclean in this verse does in fact mean illegitimate, then we must conclude that Paul is teaching that all marriages consisting of two unbelievers are not legitimate and that the children of those marriages are all illegitimate. This is not taught in the scripture. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 4 very clearly states <clears throat> marriage is honorable in all and the bed undefiled. Not just amongst believers but amongst unbelievers as well. In Genesis chapter 2 it is a creation ordinance that pertains to all men. Not to just merely believers but to unbelievers as well. Even in the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 24, in paragraphs 2 and 3, 
we read these words. Marriage was ordained for the mutual help of husband and wife, for the increase of mankind with a legitimate issue. That's mankind in general, believer or unbeliever, and of the church in particular with an holy seed, and for preventing of uncleanness. And then it says in, in paragraph 3, very unqualifiedly, it is lawful for all sorts of people to marry who are able with judgment to give their consent. Yet it is the duty of Christians to marry only in the Lord. Furthermore, it's worth mentioning that the word unclean, whether in the Old or New Testament, never means illegitimate. It's never used that way in all of Scripture. And so to apply it at this point would be absolutely extraordinary, having no basis or precedent before. I would submit, dear ones, that, the, that in order to understand the word unclean here in 1 Corinthians 7.14, we must think in terms of the Old Testament ceremonial law. For that which was unclean in the Old Testament was declared by God to be unacceptable and unapproved within either the temple or within the congregation of Israel. That which was unclean was viewed as defiled because it was not set apart for sacred use within the church of the Old Testament. <clears throat> if you want to, again, um, I'm just going to give you these passages. Uh, you want to write them down and look them up, you can certainly do so at your own leisure. Second Chronicles 23.19 speaks about nothing unclean coming into the temple. In Isaiah 52.1, in Isaiah 52.1, it actually uses the word uncircumcised and unclean together. In fact, uh, one would say that, that an unclean person during the time of his uncleanness was basically like an uncircumcised person in that they didn't have access to the privileges of the church. And the uncircumcised person was, in effect, during the entire time of his uncircumcision, unclean. It's interesting that in Ephesians 5.5, 5, an unclean person is basically equated with an unbeliever. Ephesians 5.5. 5. Thus the indisputable truth which Paul here raises to prove that the unbeliever is sanctified in the marital union with the believer is this. Listen closely. Otherwise, if that is not true, that the unbeliever sanctified in the believer, your children are unapproved, defiled heathens, having no membership, no status, no privilege within the church of the New Testament. That's in effect what he's saying. Otherwise, if... The unbeliever is not sanctified in the believer, but basically the unbeliever can corrupt the whole marriage and make the whole marriage sinful so that it's basically like an unbelieving marriage. Then, you must treat the children as if they are unclean, entirely cut off from membership, status, position, and privilege within the church. 
You see, dear ones, any of you of children born to Christian parents, even to one Christian parent, that would cut them off from membership and privilege within the church as if they were to be treated like heathens or unbelievers is contrary to the teaching of Paul and contrary to what the Corinthians already universally accepted as an undisputed fact, namely, the children of Christian parents are holy. Are holy. So how are children holy? Our third and final question. Just as the word unclean had a distinct use in the ceremonial law of the Old Testament as we have seen, so likewise did the word holy. God declared that which was approved and acceptable within the temple and within the congregation of Israel to be holy, to be set apart unto him for a special, sacred, Everything used within the temple is called holy. Whether it's the altars within the temple, whether it's the garments the priests wore, whether it's the censers, whether it's the incense, the anointing oil, the sacrifices, whatever it is that's spoken of, it's all called holy because it was outwardly sanctified and set apart for use within God's church within the, uh, for use within the congregation of Israel as they approach the Lord it's interesting that that in Deuteronomy 7 6 Israel is called a holy people and in Exodus 19 6 a holy nation now within that holy nation and within that holy people where were the children? They were part of Israel. They were part of that nation. They were part of that people. Therefore, their children were holy because they were included amongst the nation and amongst the people. They were holy. And so likewise is the church of the New Testament called a holy nation in 1 Peter 2.9. And the church of Jesus Christ is called a holy temple. In 1 Corinthians 3.17, here Paul calls children of believers holy. Therefore, I would submit to you likewise that they are a part of the holy nation in 1 Peter 2.9. They are, they are a part, visibly, of the holy temple that we find in 1 Corinthians 3.17. In Romans 11:16, the Apostle Paul is talking about Israel and referring to the present unbelief of Israel that they have departed from the Savior. For the most part, they have uh, walked away from Him and are walking in unbelief, disbelief of, of Christ and Messiah. But he says that that they are holy, nevertheless, they are viewed in outwardly in a sense that they are set apart to God because the root is holy. The fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, are holy. Their descendants are holy and set apart to the Lord. 
So here we see likewise this use of the word holy by the Apostle Paul. Why are the children holy? Because they are viewed in the root of a holy parent. They are the branch. They are the fruit that have come forth from this root and therefore are called holy. I would make perfectly clear that our children, dear ones, by nature are not inwardly holy. There are three things I want to say that, uh, uh, by way of things that this holiness does not mean, does not imply. The first is that our children are not, by nature, holy. Any more than adults, by nature, are inwardly holy. Inward holiness, beloved, is the, is the work of God's free grace, accomplished by the Spirit of God in creating faith, in Jesus Christ, repentance unto life, and loving obedience to the commands of God in the heart of a sinner who is dead in his trespasses and sins. Dear ones, children are not conceived or born innocent or morally neutral, let alone morally holy, but rather children are born and even conceived morally corrupt and guilty before God according to God's own word. In Psalm 51.5, again, I won't look up these passages. Psalm 51.5. Psalm 58.3 says that from the womb that, that the wicked go forth speaking lies. Romans 5.12 says that all men sinned, including children, sinned in Adam. Are they the posterity of Adam? then they sinned in Adam, as did all adults. 1 Corinthians 15.22 says that as all die in Adam, even so shall all who are in Christ be made alive. All in Adam die. This is the true inward situation as it relates to a child. Clearly, Paul is not teaching that children of Christian parents are by nature holy, or are all made morally holy. For we see there are many children of believing parents in the Scriptures that that was not true of. Ishmael, Esau, Absalom, and we could go on and on. They had believing parents, but the children were not holy. Another implication that is not true in, in this particular word, holy, Neither is Paul teaching in this passage that children of Christian parents are holy by means of the application, by the, merely the application of some outward ordinance, such as baptism. It is not baptism that Paul is teaching makes the children holy. For the argument of Paul is not that your children are holy because they've been baptized, but rather your children are holy because they are born of a believing parent or parents. In other words, the baptism is not the cause of holiness, but rather the result. That your children are holy, therefore they ought to be baptized. Because your children are holy, they have a right to membership in this nation, this holy nation, the Church of Christ. 
They have privileges within the church and they ought to be baptized as one of those privileges. The third thing that this word holy does not mean or imply, Paul is not teaching that your children are holy as the unbelieving spouse is holy in the exact same way. We said that the unbelieving spouse is sanctified. Remember we said that the unbelieving spouse in a marriage never was entitled to any privileges within the church? This is not the same thing. For as we search the scriptures, we find in both the Old and the New Testaments the children of believing parents had status and position and privileges within the church. We'll make that clear in just a moment. And fourthly, this holy, this word holy does not mean, does not imply that Paul is teaching your children are legitimate. As we said, just as unclean does not mean illegitimate, so holy here, as it's used, does not mean that your children are legitimate because they are born of one believing parent. Which it would mean, if that were the case, that they're only holy because they're born in the sense of being legitimate because they're born of a believing parent would mean that where there are no believing parents, your children are unclean and illegitimate. Which is not the case. Drawing to a close here, I encourage you to hang on uh, for just a couple more minutes. I said earlier when addressing the sanctification of the unbelieving spouse that never is it said that such a sanctified unbelieving spouse had membership status or privilege within the church, whether in the Old Testament or the New Testament. However, let me now affirm that in both the Old and New Testament, such a holy child born of professing believers, or at least one professing believer, is granted membership status within the church. This is evidenced very clearly in the Old Testament and in as much as, as uh, uh, infants received, male infants received, the sign and seal of circumcision, which indicated their membership in that holy nation amongst God's holy people. And as I mentioned, the female infants were, were represented by their fathers, though not specifically given this particular outward sign. So I don't think I need to elaborate on that. I think everybody, Presbyterian or Baptist, would agree that the children of the Old Testament were a part of that particular branch of the church. Circumcision indicates that. But what about in the New Testament church? What are the evidences that children were given special status, treated differently within the church, or or the uh, the children of believing parents were treated differently than those who were outside the church? What is the evidence for that? Well, in the words of the Lord Jesus Christ in Mark 10, verses 14 and 15, again, you can look that passage up, but the Lord held infants in his hand, he blessed them, he prayed over them, and he said, of such is the kingdom of God. He does not say that the kingdom of God belongs to to people like these children. He said, of such ones is the kingdom of God. 
he uses the article in the Greek language which points to specific designation of those children. Had he left off the Greek article, which in English is the, had he left off the, the equivalent to the in front of this particular, uh, this particular word, it would mean that, that those who are part of the kingdom of God are to have a quality like little children. But he says, of such are the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Furthermore, we see in Acts 2.39 that the promises were made. Peter preaches and he says, the promises are to you and to your children and to all who are far off. The promises are made to the children of believers. Children are addressed as members, in effect, in the various epistles. You find husbands addressed, wives addressed, parents addressed, children addressed, servants addressed, masters addressed. No distinction made at all. He's, it's as if he is, again, just speaking to children as part of the church. Not saying children who have reached a certain age or children who have made a particular profession of faith because we teach our children, don't we, to obey parents even before we know for sure that they've professed their faith. Paul was doing the same thing, but he was addressing them as children, as a part of the congregation. And so I'd say, dear ones, inasmuch as children were members of the church in both the Old and New Testaments, and since the Old and New Testament church are essentially one and the same, where is the authority to excommunicate children from the New Testament church if they were members of the Old Testament church? Sometimes the burden of proof and very often is placed upon Presbyterians to find a passage where children are administered the sacrament of baptism in the New Testament. Quite frankly, since it was the case that they were included in the church of the Old Testament and nothing is ever said to the contrary, in the New Testament, where is the command to excommunicate our children from membership in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ? There is none. And since they are members, then they are entitled to the sign and seal of baptism, which promises to them salvation through Christ, just as it promises salvation through Christ to their parents. To all who believe, and embrace Christ. In closing, dear ones, let me say this. Just a word of admonition to Christian parents and then a brief word to children. To Christian parents, that since your children are holy according to the scriptures and set apart unto the Lord, you are not to expect that the realization of the promise made unto them in their baptism will be accomplished apart from your love, apart from your instruction in the gospel and the word of God, apart from your training them, correcting them, apart from your discipline, apart from your earnest and fervent prayers, for your children 
and apart from including them in worship. You see, the Lord does not grant us promises and simply expect that without no means, those promises are going to be realized. He has given to us means by which his promises are realized in our life and in the life of our children. And one of the most important means is that of Christian parents who are faithful to their duties. And again, encouragement to moms and dads. Don't allow the difficulty of homeschooling, the difficulty of training your children, whether you have two, three, six, eight, ten children. Do not allow the difficulty to so cause weariness that you want to throw in the towel, that you want to say, I just want to run. I know the tendency is there. The temptation is there because it is tiring. It is an exacting job. It is difficult. But God is able to give grace. And He will give grace. And your children, as you do not grow weary in well-doing, will be a blessing to you and to the church and to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, to the children. Dear, dear children of the church, the scripture says you are holy and that you have the great privilege of being brought up in the Christian faith to enjoy the privileges of baptism the privileges of discipline and communion of the saints and upon your profession of faith coming to enjoy the Lord's Supper. My admonition to you children is to let your holiness become a source of blessing, not a source of cursing. Because if you turn your backs upon this covenant which God makes with you, the fact that you are called holy, you have been brought into the church and you turn your backs and you, or you even you say, I'm not turning my back on it. I'm just going to ignore it and neglect it. I'm just not going to pay any attention to it. You'll find that your status will cause greater aggravation of guilt and sin to fall upon your head. Your baptism will not be a source of blessing but a cursing to you because it will condemn you. It will show that you had the invitation, so clearly, the invitation to come to Jesus Christ in your baptism. The promises of God extended to you in your baptism. But you treat it as a, a mess of porridge like Esau. Don't despise the promises that are made to you in your baptism or in your status as being holy in the Lord. Take advantage and use them to the glory of God. Please stand with me in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for Thy word this day, for the instruction, the truth that comes from it. We ask our Lord and our God that Thou would help us this day to reflect upon the holy status of children, whether we're parents or whether we are children, that we would not despise, ignore, nor neglect these privileges that are bestowed upon 
the children within our congregation. That would help us, our Father, to to improve upon these promises made in our baptism, even as adults. If we received baptism when we were children, that we would improve upon these promises, or whether we receive baptism as adults. Either way, Lord, let us not treat our baptism as something merely in the past, but let us, Father, see that the Lord has invited us and promised us eternal life through Jesus Christ. Let us embrace that visible gospel portrayed in the sacrament of baptism. We ask, Lord, that Thou would make these truths uh, real to each parent and child this day. We ask this in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.